0: coming up on the scott thompson show podcast the latest on the stay-at-home order clarification on vaccination in hamilton and we play an interview that aired on chml back in 1957 with paul hanover and a survivor of vimy ridge it is riveting radio
1: and it's coming up today on the scott thompson show on 900 chml i'm curtis
2: thompson scott's son I know everyone is cranky about another stay-at-home order. However, for most of us, home isn't all that bad.
3: Excluding sisters, of course. Ah! It's the Scott Thompson Home Show.
1: Here's Scott Thompson!
0: You know, you're thinking with the whole COVID thing and the cabin fever and everybody staying at home. You know, sometimes the family gets closer. It's a good thing. I don't know about sibling rivalry, though. Uh, good afternoon. It twelve eleven. 12-11. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It is... It, it, is it Friday? Hang on a sec. Is it... It is Friday. Yes, it is Friday. All right. Uh, a Friday heading into a, uh, a stay at home weekend. So, uh, I hope you got lots of popcorn and toilet paper. Feel free to uh, jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. Uh, as we get into the latter part of the show, going to talk, of, cor- of course, about the, uh, the passing of Prince Philip and, uh, also, Uh, A very cool guest whose great uncle, Clem Burtis, was interviewed by Paul Hanover on 900 CHML. I believe this was back in 1957, uh, the 40th anniversary of the Battle of Vimy Ridge, uh, and had other connections to uh, the history as well. So, uh, interesting hour uh, in the final hour as we talk about... uh, uh, things historic as opposed to uh, the current state of affairs with the COVID-19 uh, global pandemic. All right, uh, we're going to play a report here about where we are, where we're going. Talking about lockdown and why we're heading back here for a third time. Uh, Ontario today, uh, 4,227 new cases, 18 have passed away. Dr. Barbara Yaffe says she understands why people are upset with this latest measure. It's a tough time. Everybody's sick and tired of the whole thing. And
4: we want to just, you know, get it, get out, have a nice summer. But
0: she says it will help get a hold on the rapidly increasing transmission of the disease while at the same time allowing for more vaccine to get into arms before reopening. We're
4: hoping these measures won't, you know, that they won't last more than a month.
0: Dr. Yaffe says the ICU numbers have been getting higher and putting a strain on the already stressed health care system. Dr. Dirk Heyer added that 40 percent of adults will be able to get vaccinated by the end of the stay at home order. But it's not clear yet if that's enough to prevent another lockdown from happening down the road. Dave Woodard, Global News. All right, let's bring in Dr. Isaac Bogosh, staff physician, general internal medicine and infectious disease associate professor, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I know you're busy. Hope you're doing well.
5: Yeah, not bad. I loved the intro with your son at the beginning. That's fantastic.
0: Yeah, we've been doing that for 55 weeks now. He's here. You know, you might as well have him doing something, although they are at school. Right. But uh, certainly during the shutdowns when the schools were uh, were out, he was actually doing them live. So now oh, it's a hassle right. to get him to record them all the night before. You know what I mean?
5: I like the sisters of concern instead of variants of concern. I thought that was pretty
0: funny. <laughs> hey, you might have a new term right there. Uh, it's great we can make light of this, and, and I guess perhaps that's what you have to do, considering where we are. We certainly know where we are. Uh, cases in Ontario up over 4,200. Is this the fallout from Easter, doctor? Or is it too early for that?
5: No, that's, uh, this could be the start of it. I mean, we know that. Listen, whenever we get people together indoors, uh, and you do it at a population level, you're going to see spikes in cases. It is still a bit early for Easter, but you know this is reflective of what was probably happening. I don't know seven to fourteen days ago. Within that window, um, stay tuned. It probably will get worse. It'll, the number will probably go higher before it starts to get better. We're not going to see the benefits of the current measures that are in place for about another you know ten to twelve or so days is when we'll we'll start to see the earliest benefits of that. So, I mean, I think people should get ready because you're going to see some pretty ugly numbers soon.
0: So, and unfortunately, you know, if before all holidays, we have predicted this. We've talked to uh, to experts such as yourself and, and you know, the warning of uh, going into a holiday, uh, don't go to the gatherings, try to keep the Zoom call thing happening. Um, and, and, and again, as you mentioned, that is going to be the next week or two, is it not?
5: Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. And again, it's probably not all driven by... Uh, people hanging out over Easter. I mean, I think that you can't ignore that. That's certainly a component. But we just know there's a lot of community transmission, regardless of, uh, regardless of Easter. There's still a lot of community transmission. We still have people who sadly can't work from home and are are going into work and bringing the virus into work and, 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 you know, bringing it back into a, you know, big intergenerational home as well and amplifying it there. Like, there's just lots of different avenues for this virus to be transmitted we've given it lots of different avenues to uh to expand and it's expanded and um you know it stinks because as you point out some of this was discussed you know over a month ago about the variants about how transmissible they were about how we need to do more to curb them when you take your foot off the gas pedal because things start to look pretty good you know you can't be surprised when when they rebound now it doesn't mean you can't take your foot off the gas pedal a little bit, but I think it. this isn't hindsight. Many people were discussing right. this at the time, but it was probably too much, too fast.
0: Uh, we, you know, we you know we know the term darkest moment before uh, dawn. It certainly feel feels that that's where we are. However, uh, and again, as as you're saying, it looks like case counts are going to continue to rise for the next uh, week or so. The what is the one advantage here, doctor, is like you said, the vaccines are coming in. So hopefully, at once, at sooner or later, these two are going to intersect, and and perhaps we're not going to see a shutdown or lockdowns extend as much as they did first and second second wave? Accurate? I, I don't know.
5: I mean, yeah. listen, we'd be foolish to ignore the vaccines. They are amazing. They work. They have transformed the demographic of this wave. Like, remember the ho- horrible scenario that unfolded in, in long-term care during wave one? It was terrible. Thousands and thousands yeah. dead. Then we failed our most vulnerable a second time. Thousands and thousands dead during wave two. How about wave three? Nada nothing yeah. not a peep vaccinated protected it's not going to be 100 percent perfect but like that area has been quiet okay same with community dwelling seniors over the age of 80 we don't have 100 percent of them vaccinated but there's a lot of them are and we just don't see them coming into hospital so as the vaccine program rolls out oh i should add to that frontline health care providers i mean I, this is hindsight but like Wow. Luckily, they're vaccinated because, yeah. you know, who, who are you going to use staff? Your hospitals are getting stretched beyond capacity. Luckily, we have the staff to, to you know, to function within the hospitals uh, because we're going to need all hands on deck. Um, but of course, like as these vaccines roll out, as they expand in, in high burden settings and in people who are at greatest risk of having a severe outcome, well, we will we are seeing the benefit and we'll be able to realize more and more of that benefit. But of course, that takes time. That takes time. We're vaccinating about 100,000 people a day. That's still got to expand. I'm happy about it, but it's still not good enough. We still I hope we can get over 150,000 a day. Um, They're pouring into those at risk neighborhoods. It's still going to take time. Uh, So we're going to policy our way out of this wave. I don't think we're going to vaccinate our way out of this wave.
0: Uh you said uh obviously seniors in in a better situation than they were first and second waves, who is in hospital now because obviously we're hearing more and more about young people who seem to be pretty much immune to all of this during the first and second wave now in the third, they seem to be the focus
5: yeah there's they're certainly less immune, but by and large, if you put uh you know if you have a twenty year old with covid nineteen and a six year old with covid nineteen the six year old is far more likely to land in hospital than the twenty year old what we are seeing, though, is that the average age is getting lower. Now, some of that is completely related to the vaccine rollout program. The other is related to who's getting infected and where they're getting infected. And, of course, it's not all people like to think it's young people partying. That's not, you know, I'm not even yeah. ignoring that that could be some component of it. But I think the real component is people are going to work. People are getting this at, at work or in the community or in places where they can't physically distance from others. Um, and it's not all, it is not all individual choice. Uh, so, um, yeah, so we are seeing some younger people in hospital. You can't ignore that. but still, I mean, like I just got off the a, a stint on the COVID boards. So don't take anecdotes as data. We should look at data, but just on the COVID wards that I was, that were, where I was working yeah, we still had a handful of 80 year olds. We had a lot of 60 year olds. There was a couple of people in their thirties, by and large, it was people over the age of 60 but there were more there certainly were more younger people than than during wave 1 and wave 2.
0: Your thoughts on uh as now uh we've seemed to have a lot of vaccine come in uh over easter and such and now we're seeing more targeted approaches in ontario before it was moving down through age categories then uh it, obviously there's focus now uh still on age categories but also into these uh, other hot spot areas your thoughts.
5: I love it. I mean <laughs> That was the plan. Like, this was publicly announced, I think, in February. It was up on the website, I think, in early, early March. Uh That's the phase two plan. And now it's being operationalized, which is obviously fantastic. We've got the vaccines to do it. Phase one was uh, community-dwelling seniors over the age of 80, long-term care, Indigenous communities, and frontline health care providers. I would not say that that's finished. There still is work to go on, uh, on a, several of those fronts, but there's been a ton of work on that front. And as... We pivoted from March into April, more and more vaccines coming in. You can move to phase two, which is continuing with uh, people at greatest risk of having a severe infection. That's still working our way down the age groups, but also adding those with medical conditions. Uh, So that's the one category. The other category is people at greatest risk of getting this infection by virtue of their work. So that's essential workers. And the third thing is the communities that are disproportionately impacted. Black racialized communities, high burden communities, And again, you've heard some announcements where we're pouring vaccines to those communities. So that's that's the phase two plan. It's been around for a while. And now it's just wonderful that we actually get to operationalize it because we have the vaccines to do it.
0: Will, uh, now that we're using a more targeted approach, will we still see the uh, age increments go down? I think we're at 60 now, 55 plus for pharmacies and and AstraZeneca and such. Uh, When will we see the next age drop, do you think?
5: Uh, It just dropped. So it should be in 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 most of Ontario. It's at 60 in the high burden areas. It's at 50 uh, in the mass vaccine clinics. Uh, And of course, as you point out, AstraZeneca, anyone can get it 55 and up. Uh, And then on top of that, in select area codes, there's no age limit. 18 and up can get the vaccine, but you don't sign up for that. We come to you. That's where you've got pop-up clinics and mobile clinics that show up to the place of work that are situated in, you know, the temple or the community center, like that's bringing the vaccine to the people, not bringing the people to the vaccine. And in terms of that, uh, I mean, 60s a pretty low, 60 pretty good. Uh, like, it's going to take a while. It's going to take a while to vaccinate all 60-year-olds in the yeah. province. There's a, there's a lot. Uh, and I think once we're finished with, with that, I mean, that's going to take Probably over a month, I imagine, but I, I, please don't hold my feet to the fire because I just don't know off the top of my head. But then I think we'd be at a position where we'd be able to open up to just adults, anyone.
1: So,
0: uh, still hesitancy around AstraZeneca, although we are seeing polling coming out that people are, are, are the uh, approval, the 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 want to be vaccinated increasing. Uh, your thoughts on AstraZeneca and the hesit- hesitancy around it? We've seen the health minister. Uh, obviously, get the job and the premier this morning. Does that help?
5: Yeah, I think it does. I think every little bit helps. It really do. Uh, you, you have to be transparent and honest about it. Like those those blood clots are are real. They're really rare. They're really rare, but they're real, and you can't ignore them. And I think our <laughs> our communication, our meaning the global, general, medical, scientific, public health, government, like the, that, like the the big our communication. Has been pretty lousy, I think. Right? Like, mm. first we're going to not give it over sixty-five, then we're going to give it over sixty-five, then we're not going to give it to under fifty-five. Like, then there's clots. Like, mm. we could have done a much better job in communicating yeah. risk, in communicating uh, benefit, sure. and 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 uh, like that completely contributes to hesitancy. I mean, we we shot ourselves in the foot a lot. Now, there's other things that I think we we couldn't have done any differently, but but I think. I don't think we did ourselves any favors with this vaccine. At the end of the day, it's a good product. Like, it really works. It really prevents COVID-19. I hope people go and get it. But in the same breath, data is moving pretty quickly as well. Like, we're going to find things out along the way. And, and as as you find out, you, you have to pivot. Your, da- your policy has to keep up to date with your data. So I thought that move for under 55 was totally reasonable. And a, a, a completely acceptable policy that's different would have been 18 and up can get this vaccine. However, this is what the risk is as we know it. You can make an informed decision to get this vaccine, yes or no. Like, that would have also been acceptable, too. As long as you're communicating risk and benefit in an appropriate manner, I think you're doing something
0: right. For example, let's take the 55-plus the for the AstraZeneca. So what if you're 56, 57? What, you know, because there's certain areas that are saying 60. There's uh, jurisdictions in Europe that are saying 65.
5: Yeah, I mean, this is just goes to show you, you can all look at the exact same data and come up with different conclusions. Uh, And like, we've only seen this happen about 8 trillion times during the course of this pandemic. Um, (laughs) They're all looking at the same data and coming out with slightly different policies and different conclusions. That's okay. As long as you communicate how you got to where you got and you do it effectively. Like we just open honest, transparent communication and same with policy changes as well. Like when you change your policy to reflect the new data, it's great that it's data driven, but like communicate it. Tell people this yeah. is how we came to this decision. This mm-hmm. is why we're doing it, and communicate it effectively so you can build trust, and people will align with your decision.
0: A couple of seconds left here. Any advice for us heading into another weekend?
5: No, there's no n- nothing new. <laughs> Don't <laughs> <jingle> <laughs> you know them. what to do. to do? Right? We've yep. said this so many times. Yeah. Yep. Uh, like just stay at home, go outside and hang out. Spread two meters apart. Put on your mask if you're going into an indoor setting. Outdoors are much safer than indoors, but that doesn't mean you have to have a block party outside, but go for a walk, you know, the usual.
0: Dr. Isaac Bogosh with us, South Physician, General Internal Medicine, Infectious Disease, Associate Professor, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto. As always, doctor, thanks so much. Be well. Thank you for all you're doing for us. We appreciate it. Have a wonderful day. Here's the commentary. Last night, we celebrated my wife's second COVID-19 birthday. She's not two, just the second one during a pandemic, which basically means cake, candles, takeout, and a party pack of face masks and hand sanitizer for all. She pointed out not only was it another COVID-19 birthday for her, but also the second one in lockdown with a stay-at-home order in place, like last year. Ouch but we all have our own stories of life's moments lost. However, as I said in my wife's card, this has been a year like no other and the biggest challenge a family may face. In the end, it's bringing us all closer and reinforces what is truly important in life. I think we all appreciate what we have more than ever when we're not scrapping with each other. That part wasn't in the card. So as we head into a weekend and another stay-at-home order, Maybe it's time to appreciate, for most of us, home ain't all that bad. I'm Scott Thompson.
1: You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: All right, so there's been some confusion surrounding the vaccination plans for Hamilton's COVID-19 hotspots and area codes and such. Let's bring in Donna Skelly, MPP, Flamborough, glanbrook and is with us now. Donna, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well.
4: I am, and I hope you're doing well.
0: Everything we can, right, as we enter uh, another stay-at-home order. Um, So let's clarify, and then we'll get to the area code stuff. uh, But but right now, who in Hamilton can get a shot, and where can they get a shot? Let's start with that.
4: Okay, anyone over 60 in Hamilton can get a shot by registering on the Ontario website and booking at any of the clinics across the city. And uh, that is for the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. Anyone over 55 can get AstraZeneca, and I got AstraZeneca on Monday, at uh, participating pharmacies, which are expanding. Uh, In fact, I believe another 20 went online today. We'll eventually see, I think pretty much all shoppers, drug marts in Ontario will be able to. Our objective with the AstraZeneca vaccine program is to get every pharmacy that's interested and has... um, participated in the previous um, flu vaccine programs, give them the ability to, and the product, to vax- mm-hmm. vaccinate anyone who is 55 over with the AstraZeneca. We are moving into a second phase where we're going to be targeting um, the at-risk areas, and there will be specific um, postal codes, but more, more importantly, areas where we have seen outbreaks such as large employers who have big warehouses. We'll be bringing mobile clinics to the big warehouses, to apartment buildings, to places of worship, where we can vaccinate uh, people who have historically shown or areas where we have seen consistent outbreaks. People are, as you said, more and more people are actually now signing up and getting a vaccine, but we have to do more and get the vaccine to areas where we've seen large outbreaks. And that is the large employer, department buildings, congregate settings, places of worship. We've used mobile units to vaccinate at long-term care facilities and retirement communities. Now we're going to be deploying them to these other areas where we've seen hotspots.
1: All right,
0: let's talk about Hamilton hotspots because there, there's been some confusion there. Um, uh, so postal codes, what determines the hotspot?
4: There are two factors and there are two different theories of how, and I've been on the phone with uh, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson's been great in explaining how um, hotspots are determined. The public health unit in Hamilton uses one set of criteria. The Ministry of Health used a separate set of criteria, and they arrived at different hotspots. Neither is wrong, but the truth is a com- combination of the two is really I think would be the best way to approach this. So we're working and collaborating with uh, Dr. Richardson to ensure that all of the postal codes that were identified by both the ministry and the public health unit are included in our targets, and that's what we're doing right now. So as we speak, there are uh, a number that are being considered, two that have been, um, I think they've already been determined as the hotspots, but it's just a matter of collaborating now and getting all of the information information she, you know, she, she, she made it very clear to me that it wasn't that one um, formula is necessarily inaccurate. It's just a different set of criteria that was used to determine hotspots. And I think one of the reasons you saw the focus on the mountain was the outbreak at uh, Grace Villa, and so that kind of skewed the numbers a little higher and on the mountain.
0: So at this point, it's still two hotspots, uh, two postal codes, uh, L-8W and L-9C, that are the uh, the only hotspots at this point, but the others are being looked at.
2: Uh,
4: the only postal code hotspots, but we're looking at the other areas as well, such as the uh, larger employers, warehouses, right. places of worship, and apartment buildings. They are also considered... Uh, areas that will be targeted to ensure that we can get the vaccine in these places but we'll be taking the um, mobile units to them and the way that rolls out is clearly up to the public health department they were uh, responsible and did a phenomenal job getting into our long-term care facilities they've got the system in place they're just going to be moving those those mobile units to the targeted areas where we're seeing outbreaks
1: so how will
0: people find out about when the mobile unit whatever is in their area
4: I'm assuming that the public health unit will be uh, doing everything they can. To be quite honest, we rely heavily on the media, and uh, most people who are interested will um, follow the media if they're interested in finding out where they can get a vaccine. But for people who have been confused or who have a a problem, uh, perhaps, with um, being English isn't their first language, we are going into places of worship and um I'm, I'm, the communities the community leaders will be sharing information with their own um communities and telling them that we're going to have a mobile unit here of course when it's uh, a workplace that'll be up to the management at specific workplaces to let their staff know that if they're interested in getting the vaccine the mobile unit will be on hand uh you know on this day between these hours so a lot of the places where we're bringing the units will be will will hope that they will reach out to their own community members, and post signs and reach out and talk to them and let them know that the that the mobile unit will be on hand and that they're able to get their vaccine.
0: Uh, what about the three municipal hotspots that Dr. Richardson spoke of?
4: These three. Sorry, can you be more specific? Are you talking about the postal codes?
0: The three other area codes. Yeah.
4: She's she has been phenomenal. Advocating postal codes. Sorry. Been, I I have been pushing as well, and it's. I'm just waiting. I've been on the phone all morning, just waiting on word of when they they are uh, brought in. They they it's 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 in process. Trust me, we're in the process of including it, and I'm literally just waiting for them to let me know when it's uh, it's been uh, approved.
0: Uh, another question, obviously more targeted approach. There was lots of debate last week whether uh, we keep moving down in in age demographics or we start shooting it out into uh, different targeted areas, as as you are saying now. Uh, and obviously with the big shipment coming in over the Easter weekend, it, it, it's allowed you to do that. Does that keep the age demographics on track? Will they keep going down uh, every week or two?
4: Uh, no, I think they're going to be targeting more... Uh areas frontline right. workers we want to get teachers who work with special needs kids vaccinated we want to get all teachers and all frontline workers vaccinated but we also have you know people who work uh, in grocery stores that need to have that vaccine we have people who uh work with the public and they they truck drivers people who need to be vaccinated and again we are um we are a victim of the supply and uh, the two million that came in over the weekend were already um you know accounted for they were spoken for So it's not as if we've got an abundance of vaccines sitting and we're trying to figure out where to send them. We're still waiting. We have a plan in place to get the vaccines into arms. We just have to get the vaccines. We are, based on the number in the supply chain, targeting what we believe are the hotspots and the highest risk and how we can prevent future spread. But we will lower the age qualification when that vaccine becomes abundant now our our premier has he received the astrazeneca today mm-hmm. and he has promised that we by the end of uh, the stay at home order we should have about 40% of ontarians vaccinated that will make a big difference moving forward it will be a big it will it will really help i mean we've seen how effective the vaccine is by the number of of outbreaks and and or the lack of outbreaks and deaths that we have in our long-term care facilities and retirement communities now. It is working. You just have to get that vaccine in your arm.
0: Uh, Lots of hesitancy around the AstraZeneca, and we all know why. We don't have to go back into that again. However, as you mentioned, uh, you've received it. The uh, premier got his this morning. Do you think that is going to help? Obviously, you're hoping it's going to help.
4: I know when I posted my picture, a number of people reached out and felt relieved. I've had a nurse speak to me and say, I think it's the best vaccine of the three, which I thought was interesting. I have no concern of um, getting it at all. I get the flu vaccine every, the flu shot every year, and I've never had a problem. My arm was sore after this, but that was it. Uh, I wasn't sluggish. There were no side effects whatsoever. And I feel safer. Now, it's only been a, a few days, but uh, in two or three weeks, I will feel much better. And, I, and I'm hoping that anyone who is reluctant should just go get it go and get it if you don't have any sort of a health problem with respiratory issue and if you haven't had uh, surgery recently i think you're pretty safe to get it get it it's it's important we need you to participate we need everybody who is able to go make your appointment and get your vaccine
0: have we put to rest the uh, conspiracy theories that uh, doug's sitting on a whole pile of this in a freezer somewhere
4: Well, if people who are playing partisan politics would stop saying that, maybe we could put it to to bed. But, uh, you know, it's important that all levels of government work together. And and I know you've heard that, but it's not just a line. There aren't millions of vaccines sitting in a freezer somewhere. and They're all spoken for.
0: You know what the sad thing is here, Donna? I had a medical expert say that to me on Tuesday.
4: And, you know,
0: of of course, they're there because you just got a massive shipment in. And I've had supply chain managers on talking about or professors talking about, you know, it's like getting groceries on a front on a Saturday. Your fridge is full for a couple of days. And then as the week continues on, it slowly shrinks. And then by Friday, it's empty and you got to you got to start over again. But usually your fridge is never empty. There's always something there. And it, it just amazes me to no end how this this myth has just been perpetuated when, in fact, Fact, it's you know, and to me, it's solely to take attention away from the fact that you know we're still sitting around 40th or 50th in the world because we don't have a supply.
4: That you're exactly right, and I mean, if you want to play partisan politics, I can throw a lot of things out. Why do you think we're scrambling? We only have a limited number of ICU beds because we didn't spend enough money building ICU capacity over the past 15 years. We want to talk about. Why there was a crisis in the long-term care facilities because for 15 years only 600 600 beds were created in the province of ontario and we knew we were heading into the gray tsunami we were having an aging population that would require those beds I mean, we can throw mud at anybody if we want but to suggest that a government would intentionally sit on vaccine is just it's silly it really is it's, it's it's irresponsible. We aren't sitting on vaccines. We are trying to get them out. They are all spoken for. People want the vaccine and have booked. And if we were sitting on a, a million vaccines, we'd be giving people their second dose.
0: Because yeah, and, about and, and we wouldn't we wouldn't be debating who gets it next or why we're waiting for 4 months to get to the other uh to the second shot. But uh, was- another thing I wanted to chat about Donna too and it seems that the, the you know with uh, the prime minister credit to him he is uh, trying to make this more clear. I was watching his news conference earlier today and the whole issue about sick leave and again I, I'm watching medical experts say that we need this the, the province to pay for this sick leave and 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 the premier spoke out about it the other day at his news conference and and thankfully The Prime Minister is also uh, doubling down on this as well, as he said in his news conference, that this is a federal issue and this comes from the federal government. That's what this program is that's already, or these programs that are already in place.
4: And for the critics who are arguing that we need paid sick leave, why not post it on your website that the federal government is providing 20 paid sick days to anybody who needs it? And it's about a three-day delay to have it deposited in your bank account. We can't absorb more costs because we are already trying to, you know, come out of this COVID-19 uh, pandemic with a huge amount of additional uh, costs, so, you know, directed towards our province. And we're going to have to pay for it at one point. The government, the federal government, is already providing sick pay why would we do the same it doesn't make sense for the and andrea horvath has said this time and time again we need paid leave well we have it let people know it exists and help them obtain it but don't just stand and scream and say we don't have it when we do
0: all right obviously we're heading into uh, a weekend of stay at home and such yeah. Uh, third time we've done it. What, what, what's the message here? What, what, stay, what do you want uh, Hamiltonians home. to take away from this?
4: Go Well, take your dog for a walk, go for a run, go for a jog, um, go for a hike. But just remember, we're, we're so close. But this new variant is dangerous. It is, it is spreading fast. It is attacking younger people. And it is deadly. So when we say, stay within your bubble, stay within your bubble. Wear your mask, wash your hands, and get your vaccine, and we will get through it. It's awful, and, and to have, you know, one group of people calling me saying, shut everything down, and another group saying, you're killing us with our, you know, we've got to get back yeah. to work. It's a tough, tough, tough position to be put in, but this is our problem, and we had to make decisions, and we were aware, the, you know, the results of the decisions we've made, But right now, we believe the best thing to do is to get a vaccine, and then we will be able to fight this pandemic. But it really does depend on the numbers of of, uh, vaccines we can get in arms
0: uh obviously that being an issue we've seen you know for the last four months what what we've gone through trying to get vaccines and where we are in the world trying to get them into uh, people's arms but you have to be confident that we will make huge progress by the summer simply because everyone else has been vaccinated as the u.s gets vaccinated as the uk gets vaccinated uh the u.s wants the border open they're going to ship that stuff north hopefully to to get canada vaccinated just simply because it's in their best economic interest
4: and once we are vaccinated, I'm hoping and I'm, I'm confident that you will also see a booming economy because people have money in their pocket and they're ready to spend it. And, uh, and I think you will see that. And I'm, I'm really hoping that we go back and support our local industry and support our local businesses and our local restaurants. And I'll be working with every, you know, BIA across the city to ensure that we can, do everything possible to get people to to support their local uh, entertainment districts and their local uh, businesses so that they can you know see some sort of a light at the end of the tunnel and, and recover the, the thousands and thousands of dollars that they've lost since the uh, pandemic last year.
0: Uh, one, lo- more, uh, one more local question here, Donna. Any idea when we will know more about this postal code situation and in, in, in the situation that we started all of this conversation with?
4: I will text you. As okay. soon as I hear, I promise Sounds you, good. I will text you. I promise.
0: All right, Donna Skelly with his MPP, Flamborough, Glanbrook, uh, talking about confusion uh, hot hotspots in uh, Hamilton and the area codes. Uh, more clarification coming beyond the two as we move forward. Donna, thanks for the time. Got her shot. Good for her. The Premier, too. Uh, have a great weekend. Stay safe. Good
5: afternoon. I'm Rick Print. Hamilton Public Health now allowing residents 50 and older living in three postal codes identified as hotspots to book their COVID-19 vaccine appointment through the city's hotline. The province hasn't officially designated postal codes beginning with L8L, L8N, and L9K as hotspots, but Hamilton's Medical Officer of Health has classified them as priority vaccination areas. Flamborough-Glenbrook Conservative MPP Donna Skelly says mobile clinics will also eventually be used to target high-risk areas in those hotspots.
4: And that is the large employer, department buildings, congregate settings, places of worship. We've used mobile units to vaccinate at long-term care facilities and retirement communities, now we're going to be deploying them to these other areas where we've seen hotspots.
1: 50-plus residents in the L8W and L9C postal codes can book through Ontario's online portal. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, in all
0: uh, that is going on, it may have escaped you that this is the 104th anniversary of the Battle of Vimy Ridge. Uh, part of, uh, obviously, a region in France during the First World War, the main combats were the four divisions of the Canadian Corps and the First Army against three divisions of the German Sixth Army. The battle took place from April 9th to the 12th, 1917, and the Canadian Corps to capture the German-held high ground of Vimy Ridge, an escarpment, uh, and this would protect the First Army and the Third Army farther south from German fire. Um we have a very fascinating angle to this story. Uh, we're going to introduce you to Dan Moore. His great uncle, uh, Clem Burtis, was interviewed by CHML's Paul Hanover on this day, back in 1957 on CHML. And it was the 40th anniversary of the Battle of Vimy Ridge there. Uh, let's play a portion. I'm going to take you back in history to April 9th, 1957, the Paul Hanover Show. Nineteen, I'm uh, sorry, 900 CHML interviewing Dan Moore's great uncle, Clem Burtis, about the Battle of Vimy Ridge. 1916,
3: they decided that about time that we shoved off for England. We arrived at Shoreham by Sea in England and stayed there until February 1917. Then across we went to muddy France. And then we went on up to join the battalion of the 4th Canadian Mounted Rifle. The first action I was in was at Vimy Ridge. We went into the line on Easter Sunday, and at 5.05, Easter Monday morning, everything was very, very quiet. And then it just sounded as though everything was just coming right now. opened up. The command was then by Lord Julian Bing, who later was known as Lord Bing of Emmy. He had the guns wheel to wheel on the whole Canadian front. It wasn't long until we were over in the German's front line trench and the barrage had had lifted to his support trench.
0: Oh, my, don't you just get chills uh, listening to that, uh, uh, an actual LP recording of Paul Hanover's, uh, Hanover's show on CHML, uh, April 9th, 1957, which would have been the 40th uh, anniversary of the Battle of Vimy Ridge. Let's bring in Dan Moore, great uncle, whose great uncle was Clem Burtis, who you heard there. Dan, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well.
6: I'm, I'm doing very well, Scott. And,
0: uh, yeah, thank you for this uh, opportunity. What a chilling piece of audio. What's it like for you to hear that knowing this is your great uncle?
6: It uh it's it, it's interesting. I I was very recently going through um a stack of of uh old records that my mother had. Uh so my sister and I were going through this stack with my mother and uh, uh mixed up among all these old 78s was this LP that had the um um it said it was an interview with 900 uh chml and and uh we had, i had never heard it before and so the first time i heard it was actually the beginning of last week so we spun it on my mom's old record player and it was uh, uh it was pretty exciting to uh be able to hear his voice again after after uh, so many years he he passed away in 1982 so it was uh a real treat to hear his voice again so.
0: wow it sent shivers up my spine what was your mother's reaction
6: she was, uh, um, she was, uh, uh, very fond of, of Clem and Clem was very fond of her. So it, it was, it was a pretty, you know, for all three of us when we were listening to it, it was, it, it was an emotional moment. You know, we had a, you know, we talked a lot about, about Clem and his wife Alice and everything that they did for us, uh, through the years. So it, it, it was, uh, it, it was a real sweet moment, I think is the best way to say it.
0: Uh, give us some context here. How did this interview happen? Uh, how did you get it? Uh, shed some light on this actual interview.
6: So um, so uh, my uncle, he owned what was called the Whistle Stop Cafe, which is on uh, Main Street East in Hamilton, and um, right beside Gage Park. And CHML at the time was right down, right down the street. So the, uh, the folks down at CHML used to come down to uh, the Whistle Stop for lunch and probably dinner, and they, they got to know my uncle and my, my aunt Alice quite well. And I, I still remember him talking about you know the days when he owned the Whistle Stop and, and the folks from CHML coming in and, and uh, having lunch, and, and uh, he, was, he was friends with a, a lot of the people down at the station at that time. So they they must have known that, or they found out that he was um, in both wars. Actually, he was in World War One and Two. And so, when the anniversary, uh, the 40th anniversary came about, I can just imagine somebody saying, "Hey Clem, why don't you come down to the station and let's do an interview, and you can tell us about Femi
0: Rich." So, how did this come to your possession now?
6: So, oh, this is this is where we we uh, we found found the album in the stack. And then my brother-in-law uh, uh Ian he uh, created a a digital um a file for me last week and um emailed it to me so that's yeah you know, so that so we have the the actual item is at my sister's house now and and I have the digital copy and and I just thought i'd I'd share it with others because it's uh it's not often that we get to to hear the voices of people that were actually part of events like Vimy Rich. We see old photos, we see shows on TV, but it's, it's not that often that you get to hear the, the actual voice of somebody that witnessed and was part of, of events like Vimy Rich
0: did did your great uncle speak much of his time there to family members over the years did he tell stories or we you know we understand many of those that came back just kept it all to themselves
6: yeah i when i was younger i don't recall very many stories that he would tell uh about battles or or stuff he he was wounded he did see a lot of stuff but he he was also a sergeant major in world war 2 with the 48 Thailanders out of toronto so most of his stories were more about the the parade ground type stories and and whipping whipping the young guys into shape and stuff like that and and getting them ready but he he um he didn't speak too too much about about the actual war aside from um you know aside from the parade parade ground and he had a he had a son that served in the RCAF that, that was killed in, in World War Two, right right oh towards my. the end of the war. So um yeah, he didn't uh, he'd show me his uh um his uh um shrapnel wounds and everything. I still remember seeing the dark spot on his knee where there's where there's a chunk of shrapnel, but he never got into details, not with me.
0: So, what sort of it, you were talking about the shrapnel? What sort of injuries did he receive, or what did he tell you about that?
6: So he was. Um, I I know that he was wounded. I'm assuming it was a shrapnel wound in France. I know that he was gassed in France um, in World War II. He was um, he was with the 48th Islanders in Sicily, and he was wounded in uh, by by mortar fire uh, outside. Of Nassaria, Sicily, and the Canadians' uh, action taking Nassaria, and then um, and then he was uh, later he was wounded in Holland um, again, uh, shell fire and um, and concussion. So he huh. um, yeah. So through through the through the two wars, I think he was wounded um, four at least four or five times.
0: How old was he when he passed?
6: uh so 82 and he was born in eight, uh 90 so he would have been about 84 when he passed so and he passed away in in hamilton he after he sold the whistle stop he lived on uh, i think it was king street in in hamilton and um yeah so he was about 84 i think
0: what do you think he would have thought of what we're going through now with the COVID 19 the global pandemic Many have described the, uh, it to very much more <laughs> like,
6: yeah, he'd be he'd be telling everybody to chin up and and get through it, <laughs> and uh, um, you know you know suck it up, chin up and yeah. and get through it and 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 march on and 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 march on together and and everything will be okay at the end of the day, and um, uh, for for folks like himself that. You know, survive things like World War I and World War II. They, they saw and had to go through much more than what, what we're going yeah. through right now with, with COVID.
0: So, uh, what a what a great memory to have, Dan, and thank you so much for uh, for sharing it with us. Uh, it, it's a it's a an incredible piece of memorabilia to have uh, for your family. What any is this going to stay within your family? Is there any other interest in putting this in some sort of museum or what have you?
6: Yeah, I've already uh, um, yeah, my sister uh, Judy and I we've already been talking about the the next step and, and, and posting, you know, at the very least posting it or making it available to the, uh, the Canadian war memorial um, uh, site. Um, uh, and I've already been sharing uh, the audio with um, um, some other military, historical military uh, uh, groups through, through social media. So um, um, yeah. So eventually it belongs in a, the actual physical LP itself and everything belongs in, Somewhere where it can be retained and taken care of,
0: how so, long is the entire uh, interview?
6: uh I think it's about five minutes,
0: yeah. Yeah, You uh, know, uh, I don't know how we're going to do this, but it would be very cool to play the interview in its entirety, some show. We'll look into that, Dan. Uh, Dan, what an incredible story, and uh, thank you so much for sharing it with us uh, and, and part of our history as well. We're, we're greatly appreciated that you shared your family story with us. Uh, Dan Moore, great uncle, Clem Bertis, uh interviewed by CHML's Paul Hanover on this day back in 1957 on the 40th anniversary of the Battle of uh, Vimy Ridge. Dan, incredible stuff. Thanks so much for sharing.
6: Thank you so much for this opportunity.
0: It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, We had a meeting, (laughs) and we're going to play that entire interview uh, with Paul Hanover and uh, Dan Moore's great uncle, Clem Burtis, uh, on the 40th anniversary of the Battle of Vimy Ridge, 1957. We're going to play it after the 2.30 news. It's about five minutes in length. Uh, I've only heard portions of it. I haven't heard the entire interview. So uh, what the heck? Let's uh, go for it. It's the anniversary of Vimy Ridge, and I don't know about you, but I found that audio incredibly captivating. So we will play the interview in its entirety and set it up for you uh, after the news at 2.30 if uh if you want to get ready for that, get your K-set recorders handy. All right, uh, obviously woke up to the news this morning that Prince Philip had passed away. Let's bring in Patricia Treble, royal contributor to McLean's and is with us now. Patricia, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
2: Uh, good afternoon, Scott. I'm okay, but boy... A gloomy day that hits the gloomy news of today, I think, eh?
0: It's bizarre because, you know, it's one of those situations where you're thinking, oh, my goodness, 99 hopefully makes it to 100, uh, but obviously has been ill, so kind of expected. But, man, when you lo- lose somebody of this stature and with this history, it, it's it's still startling, isn't it?
2: I think it is. I mean, you know, he he'd officially retired, you know, well, when he was 95, you know. Um, you know and but he'd been going gangbusters before that he'd been doing you know two three hundred engagements a year I mean more obviously when he was a much younger man Um, and he yeah he just seemed uh, omnipresent he was always around for us and so I think the fact that you know that he's now died I mean yes his health was clearly failing in the last in the last little while, um, you know, when Becky and Palace would do the update saying he was in hospital, they were simply um, replying all to the previous update that they had sent. They weren't even putting out new ones. Um, and and I think there was there was a sense that time was running out, especially because he was in hospital for, for four weeks. Um, and it was clear that he was battling infection. He had a heart a treatment for a, a heart ailment and that, you know, old age was catching up with the man. And mm. look, he did his RCAF exercises every day for decades upon decades. And so I think Canada came a little, a little uh, hurrah for uh, keeping him in such good shape for so
0: long. Wow. We can all learn from that. Yeah. Um, when will we or will we hear from the Queen on this?
2: I don't know that we are going to hear from the Queen. Um, mm. She's of that generation that one doesn't. I, I would expect we will probably hear from the children. Um, the pandemic kind of throws everything for a curve. I mean, yeah. it, was ne- it was never going to be a big funeral. It was never going to be a public funeral. I mean, they had they'd issued guidance long ago, and he'd made that absolutely clear. He wanted a private funeral. It'll be at Windsor. Um, the pandemic will obviously scale that down even further. Um, but I think we will likely hear from the children. Um, you have to kind of just feel, I mean, my initial thought was sympathy for the Queen. Um, this is a man yeah. who has been by her side for 74 years, and now he's no longer there. I mean, I I can't even imagine what that must feel like.
0: Do you think, Patricia, she will um, slow down even more, take a pause, step back, or do you think she'll just keep right on rolling?
2: I think this will... Uh, look, she's been slowing down for a while, and the yeah. pandemic has certainly you know contributed to that. Um I think this would simply just mark another continuation. It might be an, a little bit of a lurch downward. Yes, certainly. Um, is she going to abdicate? No um, but there's lots of ways she can step back. Charles is clearly you know is stepping up um, as is William and and I think she's just going to take as much time as she needs and and in a way, the pandemic provides a perfect, perfect Mm. kind of excuse to to just not be in the public eye and also I think people understand I mean she's turning 95 in a few few days um, you know on April 21st so I think everyone is going to give her certainly as much breathing room as she needs um, to mourn the love of her life
0: I understand that uh, that Philip and Prince Philip and Harry were quite close Mm -hmm. will we see Harry come back for this
2: Well, this we don't know. I mean, I, you know, I've been trying to, amongst everything else, trying to delve into the British quarantine rules (laughs) for people coming back. Um, It looks as though, it depends on if he's been vaccinated. Um, It looks as though there might be a carve-out if he's had both his vaccines and and he's two weeks beyond it. Um, But otherwise, there's a 10-day quarantine rule, if I've read them all correctly, and I might not have. um, And they aren't ones to... Ask for an opt out, right? They have been very careful during this pandemic. They've done a lot of, uh, everything. They've, they've taken to doing Zoom calls and all that sort of stuff, um, to keep up their, you know, with their charities and things like that. They wouldn't ask for an opt out. And so he, yes, he's famously close. He was, he was saying to Oprah Winfrey in one of the outtakes of the, of, the Famous Interview,
4: um, mm-hmm.
2: that uh, when he talks to his grandfather, and when his grandfather just wants to end the, uh, the call, he just closes the laptop.
0: <laughs> 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 he just
2: slams it shut. Show's over. <laughs> and that is so, I mean, I'm going to say, for, and for anyone who's, uh, who knows anything or has read anything yeah. about Prince Philip, that is utterly him. He is an, he's an incredibly complex man, but in many ways, he is an absolutely plain man. Um, you know, simple man
0: um how would you describe his character because we've heard so much about him mm-hmm. how he can be salty and this and that and the other and was offensive to some at times oh. how would you describe his character
2: he i mean he really is a complex man i mean he's an extraordinary man and you kinda, you have to go back and look at his childhood um, this is a man and realize he is he is perhaps more royal than the queen both his parents were royal. His mother was born in Windsor Castle with Queen Victoria looking on. I mean, he he is royal through and through. Um, but he's also a man who really grew up in exile. His family disintegrated when he was ten, and he basically, you know, he went from relative to relative. He had he had no home address. Uh, he is and so as much as he ha- always had a royal title, he was at once third in line to the Greek throne. But he chose the Royal Navy, the British Royal Navy. Uh, fought in the war, and he is a self-made man, a, a driven man. Um, and yet a man here's the contradiction. and yet a man who knew he was wear- marrying a woman who would always outrank him, who would have the ultimate rank. As and this was
1: 15.
0: back in 1952, I believe.
2: Well, but they got married in 47, and 47, in sorry. Queen and she became a queen in 52. They thought 52, they had a little yep. more time, but yeah. he knew what his future was. His future was two, two paces behind, but he took that role, and he made it. And he and he took what is a very nebulous role. I mean, you know, you're basically prince consort, yeah. and he made it so. The Duke of Edinburgh Award Schemes, um, he was the co-founder of the World Wildlife Fund. He would do all these technology prizes. He was talking to business. He was, you know, doing all this stuff, doing all sorts of books. He has, I have some of the books, the philosophical letters that he and one of the chaplains of the um, uh the chapel at Windsor Castle have written back and forth to each other talking about major religious and theological issues. Hmm. Um, so like an intellectual man. And he simply just, he, as he said, he got on with it. That's what one does.
0: And How that, is the UK so- feeling today? What's it like there, do you think?
2: wall to wall coverage, I think it's it's it is the death of a grandfather. You know, yeah. it's like the Queen is the grandmother, he is the grandfather, and it is the death of the grandfather. and And yes, I mean, he could be brusque. he could be some of his comments, you know, absolutely went over the line into racist. Um, but he was also a man who was so omnipresent in everyone's lives for so long that you can't help with the infection. Um, and of course, now they're saying, please don't leave flowers at Buckingham Palace, please, you know, in lieu of flowers, donate to charities. Um, sign up for virtual you know books of condolence, please don't come to the palaces. Um, and in a way, I think he'd like that in a way mm. you know what? think of him quietly, think of what he's done. think of you know who he is as as his own man. and look in Canada I mean how many how many um, regiments, how many organizations yeah. he was here more than any other country and I think the last thing I would say is, is Canadian Armed Forces, they gave a tweet at the very at the earliest when the, the word was just breaking that he died. And they said, with love from Canada, we send our deepest condolences to the Queen and the royal family.
0: Hmm. Patricia Treble has been, we've got to stop you there, Patricia. Patricia Treble is with us, royal contributor to McLean's Magazine. Patricia, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You're welcome. We will play the, uh, the rest of that interview we heard uh, in regard to the Battle of Vimy Ridge with Paul Hanover and Clem Burtis, uh, recorded back in 1957, when we finish with the news. It is on the way.
1: You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Good evening, everyone. Canada Credit presents
3: Paul Hanover. After <laughs> Johnny McDonald, as I see it... <laughs>
1: wow
0: uh that's what radio sounded like uh in 1957 the beginning of the paul Hanover show uh, we've been playing a recording, of and we're going to play the entire interview right here, which is, I understand, about four minutes long. Um, and, uh, and this was an old recording of the Paul Hanover Show from this date in 1957, and it was then the 40th anniversary of uh, Vimy Ridge. And uh, and we played a portion of it, and, and you know the story with uh, the, uh, the great uh, nephew who found this recording, and uh, and brought it to our attention feel free to offer your opinion love to hear from you uh mr lowe the retired teacher says scott giving you an a a level four plus performance on that segment that's an a plus for you older people lest we forget Vimy ridge interesting that those soldiers returned to canada in 1918 they were right into the spanish influenza pan, influenza pandemic of 1918 to 1920, a very deadly pandemic that cost an estimated 20 to 40 million lives and had four waves. This is uh, Clem Burtis telling Paul Hanover what it was like uh, when they stormed uh, Vimy Ridge. Play the interview. Now it's time for another Hi All from Paul.
3: We have a very simple way in which Mr. Clem Burtis, who is owner of the Whistle Stop on Main Street just down from CHML, is a veteran of that engagement. I'd like you to listen to him now. Well, Paul, it was in, 19, in 1915 when I decided to join the Army, so I took off for Owen Sound. I was just a little over 16 years of age, and I was accepted and done some training in Owen Sound, and later on we were sent to Niagara-on-the-Lake, and from there to Camp Borden. 1916, they decided that about time that we shoved off for England. We arrived at Shoreham by Sea in England and stayed there until February 1917, Then across we went to Muddy France. And then we went on up to join the battalion of the 4th Canadian Mounted Rifle. The first action I was in was at Vimy Ridge. We went into the line on Easter Sunday and at 5.05, Easter Monday morning, everything was very, very quiet. And then it just sounded as though everything was just coming right down, opened up. The command was then by Lord Julian Bing, who later was known as Lord Bing of Vimy. He had the guns wheel to wheel on the whole Canadian front. It wasn't long until we were over in the German's front line trench and the barrage had, lift, had lifted to his support trench, where after a time we moved forward and all we found there was the odd few German stragglers who quickly surrendered and went to the rear of our lines. We kept on going until we got into his reserve line and the same action happened as what was in the... Support trenches of cleaning up all the odd stragglers that we could find. Some were hidden in dugouts, but it wasn't long before we ferreted them out of there. We went right on until we succeeded in taking the top of the ridge, and from there on, we could overlook into Petty Vimy and Avion to our left. We remained there and consolidated our position until April the 21st, 22nd, when there was a just a little wedge in the line, which had to be straightened out. One company of my battalion was sent up, along with two English battalions, one on the right and one on the left. And this they done, and from then on, we just cob-wired the whole of the the ridge, which we held and consolidated until until the end of the war. Were the roads muddy then, sir? Very, very muddy. There was lots of mud all over the place. Our casualties were quite heavy. But after all, it was really worth it to do. Had it been tried before, it had been tried by the British and the French. But they succeeded in taking the position but not holding it, owing to the fact that they didn't advance far enough to the top of the ridge.
0: That is what we have of the interview uh, that Dan Moore uh, had sent to us. His great uncle, Clem Burtis, interviewed by Paul Hanover on CHML on the 40th anniversary of uh, the Battle of Vimy Ridge, and as I wrote back to uh, Dr. Lowe, the teacher who has given me an A+, plus, that's been taken down to an A because I didn't pronounce core uh, correctly, and my apologies for that. I'm just a young guy. Uh, but fascinating, fascinating uh, audio of, of the time, Uh, This recorded back in 1957, but obviously uh, talking back to the actual battle, which had happened 40 years earlier, and just some haunting uh, terminology that was used back then and that uh, we heard from Clem, um, like uh, clear them out and talk of putting up the barbed wire uh, to secure the ridge and such. And uh, man, what a frightening time it must have been. Uh, to live through any of that, and especially to be on the front lines. And, uh, uh, you know, as Dan said, when I asked him what his uh, great uncle would have thought about where we are now in the pandemic, uh, he would say, suck it up, buttercup, and uh, let's work together, let's get her done and you know when you listen to audio like that and you remember what our uh, parents and grandparents and great-grandparents went through uh, it certainly keeps in perspective what we are all going through now many have described this as a war and there are casualties but nothing like the destruction and, and i'll leave it at that the destruction and death that went on uh, during those two world wars uh, and and it is especially important as we head into uh, another stay-at-home order that we remember the courage, uh, we remember the discipline, we remember uh, what these people fought for and what they would think of us in the battle that we are facing and how we are dealing with this. And hopefully with listening to this sort of audio that just, for me, sends chills up the spine, it will give us uh, more support, more encouragement uh, to to keep going, to keep fighting, to keep getting through this, the way our ancestors did so many times over the years. Uh, So thanks again to Dan Moore for for sending us that audio. Uh, It's something we'll cherish for a while.
1: The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900-CHML.
0: This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate,
1: and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.